Welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for January 26th, 2023. I'm Ann Coke Gare, and here is our first story. Asbury intersection to become four-way stop. Residents petitioned for safety at Asbury and Siple Roads by Kaylee Reese at Asbury, Iowa. An Asbury intersection will be converted into a four-way stop following a petition from more than 150 people concerned about motorists' safety. Asbury City Council members this week voted unanimously to make the intersection of Asbury and Siple Roads into a four-way stop. The issue came up for discussion in response to a petition circulated by residents about the intersection's safety. The intersection was starting to become problematic, Mayor Jim Adams said following the council meeting. This was the quickest, least expensive way to give an immediate benefit, end quote. Adams said the timeline for when the intersection will change to the four-way stop still is being decided. City staff will have to look into new signage and painting the road, as well as how to communicate the change to motorists. The intersection currently has flashing stop signs on both sides of Seeple Road, but traffic on Asbury Road does not stop. But some people still do a quick stop or not even a complete stop on Sepal before they go through that intersection, Police Chief Tom Henberry said. The problem is that they don't stop long enough. Henberry said a petition recently was circulated by residents of the Forest Hills Estate subdivision who frequently have to drive who frequently have to drive through the intersection when editing and Enter, exiting and entering the subdivision. The petition dated October 26 garnered 153 signatures and asked for both short-term and long-term solutions to improve the intersection's safety. In addition to asking for the intersection to become a four-way stop as soon as possible, it is also asked that a roundabout be constructed at the intersection in the future. Currently, the intersection is extremely dangerous with various blind spots for both the person turning and going straight off Seeple Road, the petition states. Quote, to date, there are far too many accidents at the intersection, end quote. The petition cites a 1994 crash at the nearby intersection of Seeple and Middle Roads that resulted in the death of Joel Astola, 16, and injured two other people. Quote, we as a community are asking the city to be proactive by improving the safety of the intersection of Seeple Road and Asbury, a few blocks away from where Joel's life ended way too short, and, the re- and reduce the likelihood of another tragic traffic event that could have been easily prevented, the petition states. In 2018 and 19, city officials considered the possibility of installing a roundabout at the intersection at some future time, but in recent years, other intersections have been the fo- focus of roundabout discussions. Quote, we have an intersection at Asbury and Hales Mill Roads, 
in Asbury that's higher on the priority list for a roundabout, and the funding is allocated for that, end quote, Adams said. Quote, roundabouts cost about $1 million on average. We have a lot of work to do before we know that we want to do it at the Asbury and Seeple intersection. City Council members approved the construction of the Asbury and Hales Mill Roads roundabout in August, as well as a roundabout in the intersection of Asbury and Radford Roads. Hanaberry said the Asbury and Seeple Roads intersection had seven reported crashes last year, a jump from previous years. Data on the Iowa Department of Transportation's website shows the intersection had three crashes reported in 2021 and one in 2020. A crash also was reported at the intersection on Saturday, the data shows. One of the more serious recent crashes at the intersection happened November 27th when Aaron C. Burbach, 38, of Dubuque, was seriously injured after a vehicle hit his motorcycle. Two accidents in less than two months is not a good trend, said said Adams, referencing the motorcycle crash and Saturday's crash. Hanaberry said that said it is typical to track vehicles going 40 miles an hour or more near the intersection, despite the posted speed limit being 35 miles per hour. We're just trying to improve safety at that intersection, he said of the four-way stop plans. This is just a step there. No one wants to stop at more stop signs, and no one wants to interrupt the flow of traffic. But looking at at the traffic trends, a lot of people are turning into on to Sepal, and I think people are slowing anyway to make those turns. Hopefully this doesn't, doesn't interrupt the flow of traffic. A Life Remembered E.D. Woman's Turtles Better Than Betty Jane's Family Says Margie Roth Loved Sharing Her Baked Goods and Treats and Here's Your Bag by Grace Neeland East Dubuque, Illinois If you ever stopped by Margie Roth's home in East Dubuque, there was a good chance you walked away with a baked good or some other tasty treat. The longtime homemaker especially was known for her turtles, which her family revered as better than Betty Jane's. She could whip up delicious peanut brittle too, though she said it tasted best when made on a sunny day. No matter who it was, there'd be a plate with candies and turtles on the table. And if you liked them, she'd go to the refrigerator and grab you a bag, said Margie's son, David Roth, of East Dubuque. Even even if she'd never met you before, if you liked them, it was, well, here's your bag, take it with you. Margie died on November 25th, surrounded by family. She was 99. She was born on May 25th, 1923, to Arthur and Catherine Welzer, Welter Sarazen. She grew up in rural Dubuque with nine siblings and attended a one-room schoolhouse nearby. In her teen years, she met her future husband, Ambrose, quote, Amby, end quote, Roth, on the floor of one of Dubuque's dance halls. The two hit it off. It was funny because Dad was going to ask Mom's sister out, and then my uncle was going to ask Mom out, David said. Somehow it all got up 
switched up, and Dad started dating my mother after that night. The two dated until Ambie left to join the Army during World War II, at which point the couple maintained the relationship over the distance, over long distance, while Margie worked at a local battery factory. The two married on July 25, 1945, while Ambie was home on break. After Ambie returned from his service, the couple had four kids, Daniel, Diane, Dwayne, and David. Margie was known as, quote, the protector, end quote, helping the kids hide a, bag of, a bad grade or two so they didn't get into too much trouble with their dad. The family moved to a farm in East Dubuque in 1966. Margie threw herself into the, the lifestyle. She helped with chickens, collecting and cleaning the eggs, and she would bottle feed the runts when new pigs or calves were born. They had no trouble getting people to work for them on the farm either because they all knew they were going to get a good meal out of it. She always cooked a good meal for everybody, said Margie's granddaughter, Michelle Filardo of Mineral Point, Wisconsin. As much as Margie loved being a mother, she adored being a grandma to her six grandkids as well as her numerous great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids. She often would have sleepovers with her grandchildren, even in their adult years, during which she would teach them card games or pass-down recipes. Margie was also a lifelong wizard with the sewing machine, Michelle said. She would make clothing or toys for family and friends when the kids were younger, and if someone had a hole in their sock, she would put a light bulb in it and stitch it up. Quote, when one of her granddaughters passed, she had been wanting a cabbage patch doll. She was only 10, and she got killed in a car wreck, and she wanted a cabbage patch doll so bad, recalled Diane Korish, Margie's daughter of Benton, Wisconsin. So Mom sewed one up and made it look real nice and put it in the casket. Margie welcomed newcomers to the family with open arms, too, using her kind and caring nature to immediately make them feel right at home. She took nuts out of her turtle recipes for those who didn't like the taste and lent an ear to those who needed it. I saw her as a second mom, said Pam Roth, Margie's daughter-in-law. My mom died when I was 30, and Margie was there for me, and it was like having a mom again. Margie remained independent until the end, continuing to live alone at the family farm near Ambie's, after Ambie's death in 2014, all the way up until a bad fall a few months before her death. She often tried to persuade visitors to drive her to the driver's license station so she could retake her driver's license test after her license expired at the age of 95. In her later years, she enjoyed playing card games as well as reading the newspaper and watching kickboxing matches on TV. She especially was fond of the nights her neighbor, Millie, would visit, and the two would eat popcorn and split a, pan a can of Coors Light on the porch. Margie never lost her laugh of wit. Just weeks before she died, she still was beating her grandkids at card games and laughing over lunch. She just had a sense of humor and a wit about her that was in November still. Michelle said, that was just a couple of weeks before her passing, and we just had BLTs and chips, 
and talked like always. She was great, just so caring, like always. Okay, now we're on to page two. Dubuque and Tri-State. Dubuque police seek a man accused of arson. Jameer J. Jordan faces arson and burglary charges related to a fire on Romberg Avenue. This is from the Telegraph Herald. Dubuque police see the public's help seek the public's help in locating a man who allegedly started an apartment fire over the weekend. Police seek to arrest Jameer J. Jordan, 33 of Dubuque, on charges of first-degree arson and first-degree burglary. The charges relate to a fire at 625 Romberg Avenue, Apartment 5, at about 6.40 a.m. on Sunday. The fire was contained to a bedroom and no injuries were reported. A press release states that one occupant of the apartment was asleep at the time and evacuated when she woke up and smelled smoke. Court documents state that the woman reported she could see flames coming from the room of her roommate, Alex Halpert, 19, but Halpert was out of town at the time. During, During an ensuing investigation, officers found that Jordan entered the apartment prior to the fire and had stolen several items, including clothing, jewelry, and electronics, the release states. Quote, the fire was apparently then set by igniting the various items within this apartment. The release states, court documents state that in addition to the fire in Halpert's room, a separate bedroom contained a clothing rack full of baby clothing. Within these clothes, four pieces were partially burned with, with fire damage, the document states. Quote, a Dubuque Fire Department fire marshal in parentheses, indicated the damage were consistent with someone intentionally starting clothes on fire. The incident reported report connected to the fire lists $300, a $300 television as stolen item and about $100 worth of clothing as burned. Court documents state that a Wi-Fi router, a small box of jewelry, and several pairs of shoes were also missing. Lieutenant Brendan Welsh told the Telegraph Herald that investigators were looking for other electronic items as well. Court documents state that Jordan, who knows Halpert, was captured on cameras leaving six leaving six twenty five Romberg with a flat screen TV and a large black garbage bag filled with unknown items at five oh three AM on Sunday. Anyone with information on Jordan should call the police at 563-589-4415 or tips can be submitted online at cityofdubuque.org backslash ID4PD. Tips can be submitted anonymously. A fundraising page for Halpert and her 11-month-old son has been set up at https colon backslash backslash bit dot ly backslash 3km4ptm article news in brief documents man threatened to return with gun to delaware county bar 
in Delhi, Iowa, or Del High, Iowa. Authorities said a Delaware County man threatened to bring a gun to a bar after dis- a disturbance. Michael J. Whalen, 47, of Del High, is charged in Iowa District Court of Delaware County with, three, with threat of terrorism and disorderly conduct. Court documents state that the authorities responded at about 11 p.m. Saturday to Delhi Landing in Delhi. Authorities learned that Whalen had caused a disturbance in the back bar area when he became belligerent, quote, belligerent with the female DJ and told her he would ruin your life, end quote. Documents state patrons attempted to escort Whalen out of the bar and make him leave the premises. Once outside, Waylon grabbed, quote, grabbed the beard of another man's subject, another male subject. Documents state, Waylon left the area before law enforcement arrived. Shortly after that, Waylon allegedly posted four messages that referenced during returning to the bar with a gun on Delhi Landing Facebook page. Authorities said five people were in the bar at the time that the Facebook comments were discovered. Fearful of the threats, those in the bar locked the doors of the building and hid. Authorities later located Waylon at his residence after his son called 911 to report that Waylon was unresponsive. Waylon was medically cleared and read his Miranda warning. Documents state, Waylon admitted to making the posts on Facebook but told authorities that it was a joke. Police, Dubuque man sexually assaulted girl younger than 16. Police said a Dubuque man sexually assaulted a girl this summer and then sent her inappropriate messages through social media app. Jacob A. Bullinger, 24, of 1936 White Street, was arrested at 5.24 p.m. Tuesday at Dubuque. Law Enforcement Center on a Warrant charging third-degree sexual abuse and enticing a minor younger than 16. Court documents state that Bollinger sexually assaulted a girl he knew this summer at his residence. During their investigation, authorities reported learning that Bollinger sent messages through a social media app to the girl, stating that he wanted to meet at various locations to have sex. Police interviewed Bollinger on November 29th. He denied sexually assaulting the girl. Local COVID, two local COVID-19 related deaths reported in Dubuque County team to pause updates. There were two additional COVID-19 related deaths reported in the Telegraph Herald's 10 county coverage area from January 19th to Wednesday. One death each was recorded in in Dubuque County and Grant County, Wisconsin. On Wednesday, the Dubuque County Public Health Incident Management Team announced it was pausing, in quotes, its COVID-19 updates, most recently delivered on Wednesday each week. The team will continue to monitor local, regional, and national conditions and trends related to covid and will provide updates when necessary, states a press release. 
Quote, the IMT continues to encourage residents to stay up to date on their COVID vaccinations slash boosters, test for COVID, and stay home when experiencing symptoms, and to take precautions like wearing a mask when situations warrant. Meanwhile, as of Wednesday, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention rated the COVID-19 community level as low in Clayton and Delaware counties in Iowa, and in Crawford, Grant, Iowa, and Lafayette counties in Wisconsin. The community level was medium in Dubuque, Jackson, and Jones counties in Iowa, and in Joe Davies County, Illinois. Jackson County man wins $100,000 lottery prize. Cibula, Iowa. A Jackson County man recently won a $100,000 lottery prize. Joshua Mueller of Cibula won the 28th top prize in the Iowa Lottery's $100,000 mega crossword scratch game, according to a press release. He bought his winning ticket at K&J's Hop and Shop in Cibula. The $100,000 Mega Crossword game is a $10 scratch game. The odds of winning the top prize are one in about 119,000. There is a photo of cross-country companions. People cross-country ski at Bunker Hill Golf Course in Dubuque on Tuesday. Uh, the photos taken by Jessica Riley, Telegraph Herald, with the Telegraph Herald, and there are. It's a very colorful shot with a man and two women, smiles on their faces in the white snow, cross country skiing. Area event venues report no issues as Ticketmaster comes under fire. Live national. Live Nation Entertainment owner of the company has been accused of a monopoly on the ticketing service industry by John Cruz, uh, john.cruz at themedia.com. As a national ticket sales business faces scrutiny at a federal level, local venues that use the company's services said they have not run into issues with the business. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing this week to examine claims that Live Nation Entertainment, the owner of ticket sales website Ticketmaster and events promoter Live Nation, has a monopoly on the live event ticketing industry. Live Nation and Ticketmaster previously operated as two separate companies but merged in 2010. The hearing came after the Ticketmaster website crashed last year during a pre-sale event for musician Taylor Swift's upcoming tour. Those with concerns about the company say Live Nation Entertainment's lack of competition and artificial increases in prices for ticket purchasers, accusing the company of practices such as withholding acts from venues that choose not to use Ticketmaster. The, quote, these issues are 
symptomatic, I think, of a larger problem, end quote, said U.S. Senator Dick Durbin, Democrat of Illinois, who kicked off this week's hearing. Quote, Live Nation has consolidated its dominant position in the ticketing and live entertainment markets, and the result is a competing killing, is a competition killing strategy. Ticketmaster officials have contended that venues, not Ticketmaster, set service fees and that Live Nation owns just 5% of U.S. venues. Local venues that use Ticketmaster said this week that they have not experienced issues with the company. Quote, they are the software company that we use to sell our tickets, and we have not had any issues there, said, end quote, said Brian Rakestraw, chief operating and finance, off, finance officer for DRA and Q Casino, which sells tickets for live events through Ticketmaster. Rakestraw said Q Casino has used Ticketmaster for years, and Live Nation Entertainment has never tried to require the casino to book acts through Live Nation or interfered with the venue booking or ticketing process in any other way. Dubuque's Five Flag Center also sells tickets for its events through Ticketmaster. Five Flags General Manager Aaron Rainey did not respond to messages seeking comment. H.R. Cook, former general manager of Five Flags Center and now regional vice president for Venue Works, which provides management s- solutions for venues across the country, noted that Ticketmaster is a dominant player in the ticketing services industry. However, its dominance has less to do with Live Nation Entertainment operating as a monopoly and more to do with Ticketmaster maintaining the best ticketing service available to venues, Cook said. Quote, they are the easiest and most accessible platform out there, he said. They are going to continue to be big until something better comes along. Cook said the ticket prices for live events have risen for consumers in recent years, which he attributed to rising service fees that go to venues, promoters, and the ticket seller, and to the presence of ticket scalpers. Despite those rising prices, however, concerts still are selling out, Cook said. Quote, you hear people keep complaining about a monopoly, but they keep paying it, end quote, he said. Until people are no longer willing to pay those high fees, then they will keep charging that much for those shows. Okay, on this date in the Almanac, today is Thursday, January 26th, the 26th day of 2022. There are 339 days left in the year. On this date in 1915, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Rocky Mountain National Park Act, which created America's 10th National Park. In 1962, the United States launched Ranger 3 to land scientific instruments on the moon. The probe ended up missing its target by more than 22,000 miles. In 1933, Vaclav Havel was elected president of the newly formed Czech Republic. And that is from the Associated Press. Today's birthdays, cartoonist Jewel Pfeiffer is 94, 
Sportscaster actor Bob Eukener is 88. Actor Scott Glenn, 84. Singer Gene Knight is 80. Activist Angela Davis is 79. Actor Richard Portnow is 76. Rock musician Corky Lang with Mountain is 75. Actor David Strathairn is 74. Producer, director Mimi Leader is 71. Alt County singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams is 70. Reggae musician Norman Hassan with UB40 is 65. Actor-comedian talk show host Ellen DeGeneres is 65. Rock musician Charlie Gilling, Gillingham with Counting Crows is 63. Hockey Hall of Famer Wayne Gretzky, 62. Musician Andrew Ridgely is 60. R&B singer Jazzy B, Soul to Soul, is 60. Actor Paul Johansson is 59. Director Lenny Abrahamson is 57. Actor Brian Callen, 56. Gospel singer Kirk Franklin is 53. Actor Nate Mooney, 51. Actor Jennifer Crystal is 50. Rock musician Chris Hesse with Who... Huba Stunk is 49. Actor Matilda Sedegas is 49. Actor Giles Marini, 47. Gospel singer Ty Tribet is 47. Retired NBA player Vince Carter is 46. Actor Sarah Rue, 45. And actor Colin O'Donohue is 42. In the opinion section, we're now on page 4A, the Telegraph Herald, uh, Bob Woodward, publisher, Amy Gilligan, executive editor, Telegraph Herald Media editorial board, Amy Gilligan is the chair, Bob Woodward, Dustin Cass, Mike Fortman, Ali Hinga. The, mesh, the Telegraph Herald's mission is to be the preferred provider of local news, information, and advertising content in the markets we serve. Joe Davies, County Officials Failing to Keep Communities Safe, by Gerald Podraza for the Telegraph Herald. This is entitled The Other View. On October 26, 2022, during the annual Christmas tree trimming gala, Galena Post Police Department received a report about a truck speeding around town. Officers identified the suspected vehicle parked and staked, out, staked it out. Later, upon interrogating the driver, Galena Police discovered three loaded weapons, all of which are considered military issue. One weapon, one weapon in particular, an AK-47 assault rifle, the same weapon used during the war in Ukraine. The following morning, a Joe Davies County 
judge, upon recommendation of the Joe Davies state attorney, both elected Republicans, permitted the arrested Platteville, Wisconsin resident to leave Galena on a personal reorganizance bond. Was that decision keeping us safe? As a, re- as a result of interdiction on the high seas by the U.S. Navy on January 7th, 2023, our sailors found 2,116 AK-47 assault rifles loaded on a fishing boat on its way from Iran to Yemeni rebels. They confiscated the military-issue weapons and displayed them on deck of the USS Sullivan, a guided missile destroyer, without question an act that demonstrates, quote, who is keeping us safe, end quote. As a court appearance in Galena on January 5th, 2023, a judge formalized charges against the Platteville resident two Class four felony counts, apparent unlawful use of weapons. The judge also required the defendant to pay a $25,000 bond. After a serious Internet search, information might suggest if if a Platteville man is found guilty, he is headed to a sentence of probation. If that sentence is imposed, is such a decision keeping us safe? Given the Joe Davies County State's attorney outrageous public declaration that he will not uphold new Illinois law banning automatic-slash-military assault weapons, citizens can feel assured he will avoid a declaration of full-slash-appropriate punishment. An individual charged with two Class four felonies can receive one to two years in prison, and a fine of $25,000 for each count. When extremist Republicans, Joe Davies County State's Attorney and Sheriff, believe our right to defend ourselves excludes personal responsibility, they fail to keep us safe. So who is keeping us safe? We are, though our diligent eff- through our diligent efforts, to not only report criminal behavior, but to follow up with attendance at court hearings. Our presence face-to-face with officials like Joe Davies County State's attorney, sheriff, and judge communicates directly our requirement. Keep us safe. The next court hearing involving the Platteville resident charged with unlawful use of an AK-47 assault rifle is scheduled for 1 p.m. February 23rd at the Joe Davies County Courthouse. Demand elected officials to be tough on crime and guns. The author Podaza as at Joe Davies County is a Joe County Davies County, Illinois resident. Some letters to the editor is next. City shouldn't see parking meters as revenue generators. Mike Van Pamel, Aurora Street, Dubuque, is the author. I found the article regarding the city of Dubuque's planning to add full-time parking officials officers in Saturday's paper most interesting. 
While there is some mention of what should be the primary reason for the existence of parking meters, the constant turnover of parking vehicles allowing for local businesses to have a steady stream of customers, it seems the true intention is the generation, gener, generation of revenue. It is repeated multiple times that this is an effort quote, an effort to boost revenue, end quote. A city council member is optimistic that this will generate more parking ticket revenue. This is all very distasteful. The purpose of parking meters should not be to generate fines. They are there to generate revenue through their direct cost, quote, plugging the meter, end quote, and to keep the turnover happening. What is next? What if the police department enforced regulations not so much for the purpose of public safety, but to raise revenue? Think how much revenue could be generated if speed traps were set up around town. I imagine that Dodge Street alone might be able to fund the total expansion of Five Flags Center. On another parking-related note, and perhaps regarding revenue generation... Oftentimes, when I walk downtown on Bluff Street, I will see an electric vehicle that is plugged into an outlet on a street lamp pole. I assume this is a city-owned street lamp pole, as it's one of the black ones that surrounded Washington Square. Does the owner of that vehicle pay the city for the use of that electricity? Or am I and all other local taxpayers subsidizing this person's use of an EV. The next TIF, an important tool to grow Iowa economy by Jim Holtz, Indiana Court Dubuque. As a planner with 30 years of experience helping communities small and large plan for growth and economic development, I can unequivocally unequivocally say that tools like tax increment financing are essential to growing Iowa's economy. Recent proposals by the Iowa legislature could hinder the effectiveness of the TIF as a tool to create jobs. For instance, the House of Representatives released HF1 that would hamper communities' ability to proactively pursue certain development utilizing urban renewal funding by changing its designation from an essential county or city purpose to a general purpose. This would require a vote of the citizens to determine whether or not funding for a deal could be approved. Since since such bonds have no impact on property taxes or levies from any jurisdiction, This move would merely handicap growth without anything to gain for Iowa's citizens. Instead, let's focus on how we can promote investment in our communities and make Iowa a place people want to stay and build their family. Tax dollars for private schools raises concerns. This is by Thomas Boxleiter. Box Leiter, Kirkwood Street, Dubuque. As the Republican-led Iowa State Legislature moves forward with vouchers allowing parents to use tax money to private schools, 
I would like to put forward a few concerns. One, the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment clearly forbids the support of any religious institution, and of course, most private schools are sponsored or supported by such an institution. Two, our public school system has had enough to deal with out without the inevitable funding cuts that such a voucher system would create. Don't fool yourself about this one. Three, are the Republicans willing to provide financial support to non-Christian schools, parentheses, Muslim, Jewish, Buddhist, humanist, etc., and parentheses? This law will and should foster development of those schools as well. Four, my tax dollars support many things that I do not support, such as big military programs, wealthy corporations, and corrupt governments in other nations. As these programs do not violate our Constitution, I have no choice to fight them with my vote and my voice. This voucher system will support beliefs that I and many like me are uncomfortable with, but in doing so will violate the most basic precept of our laws, the separation of church and state. This precept protects all religious beliefs, but the price of having them for yourself is footing the bill yourself. Who Needs Public Education? By David Overby, Swiss Valley Road, Piosta, Iowa. Piosta, Iowa. Finally, we're going to defund public education. We don't need to have everyone educated, only the elite. We don't need educated workers. Anyone can run the robots, which make everything now. We don't need workers, just bosses. Future leaders can go to expensive special education schools to learn how to boss. Getting rid of public schools gets rid of those silly school diversions like music, art, and sports. Think of the money saved by shuttering gyms and football fields. Too many kids go to school and college only to be the night manager of some fast food joint. Certainly the average worker doesn't need to be able to read and write. Machines do that. And teachers... Arrogant part-timers who would be better suited for digging ditches. All those school staffers would be useful doing menial work. Side benefit, we wouldn't need all those non-American immigrants to do those jobs. Plato nailed it in about 375 B.C. when he considered only philosopher kings, not just anybody to be worthy of leading. Future leaders would be chosen early by their rich parents, to be schooled thusly to be philosopher kings. Everyone else would be slaves. And in the 1848 Communist Manifesto, it was absurdly proposed that the state provide, quote, free publication for all children, end quote. So clearly public education is a communist plot to overturn the natural order of things where the rich dominate the poor. But we're finally waking up and demolishing our outdated and useless public schools. Manchester makes last push on property negotiations near the airport. By Dylan Kurt, the Manchester Press. 
Manchester, Iowa. As the city moves forward with an expansion, officials mull eminent domain if they are unable to to reach an agreement with three entities. In an effort to keep an airport expansion project moving forward, the Manchester City Council has instructed the city attorney to once again reach out to hold property owners. Should those continue negotiations fail, the council showed by a four-to-one vote that it possesses the political will to possibly move forward with eminent domain proceedings. For several years, the council has been attempting to acquire several tracts of land to facilitate its goal of expanding the Manchester Municipal Airport to satisfy Federal Aviation Administration safety requirements. The runway at the airport currently is too small to add an instrument approach, which is required for most modern aircraft. In some cases, because of the runway's length, insurance companies won't even allow aircraft to land. After several environmental studies and deliberations with engineers and the FAA, It was determined the best course of action was to expand the runway north-south, which would require the city to take possession of several adjoining properties. While successful on several fronts, the city has reached an impasse with a few property owners. By a four-to-one vote, the council member Linda Schmidt dissenting, the council authorized City Attorney Jim Peterson Peters to enter negotiations with the remaining property owners and to begin eminent domain proceedings if he is unable to reach an agreement. Quote, We're into this so far right now, with years and years of commitment and and investment in the airport, that there's really no turning back, end quote. Council Member Dean Sherman said, quote, We have to proceed and maintain the airport and make improvements, end quote. There are five holdout tracks owned by three entities, a 10.3-acre tract, and 33.61-acre tract owned by Todd and Angela Summers, 8.62 acres owned by Kevin and Mary Offerman, and 0.42 and 0.43 acres owned by TNT Farms, Elizabeth Beswick Todd. City documents state that the Summers were offered a total of $460,000, the Offermans $134,000, and TNT Farms $3,000 to acquire the area's permanent easements or $26,000 for the fee acquisition of the area needed for the project. Property owners were given until August 1st, 2022 to accept or make reasonable counteroffer. Grants from the FAA would cover 90% of the costs, and the city would be on the hook for around $63,400 if all three properties were purchased. Because the city will be using federal dollars for the acquisition, city manager Tim Vick said a process must be followed to justify the prices of the city is willing to pay. 
The tracks have been appraised, and property owners have been given the opportunity to counter those figures or submit their own. We've had some give and takes, some back and forth, but everything else has just stalled out, Vic said. Sherman asked if the FAA was aware of the current situation, and Vic said they were. We don't take it lightly, Sherman said, of poten- potentially using eminent domain. Quote, it's a serious venture that could cost a lot of money. It's hard to make these choices, but in my mind, there's no other way to proceed. On October 16, 1964, Democratic vice presidential aspirant Senator Hubert Humphrey breezed into Dubuque, greeted a wildly cheering, flag-waving crowd of 3,500 at the municipal airport and tore into Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. People came from as far as 200 miles to catch a glimpse of Humphrey. And there's a photograph of him waving at a podium with a big grin. Dubuque residents recall politician Humphrey at his death 45 years ago. This article is written by Eric Hogstrom. A prominent national political politician forged lasting local ties during two visits to Dubuque. Hubert H. Humphrey, Humphrey's local ties were recalled upon his death 45 years ago. Humphrey served as the vice president of the United States from 1965 to 1969 and represented Minnesota in the U.S. Senate from 1949 to 1964 and from 1971 to 1978. A Democrat, Humphrey lost the 1968 presidential election to Republican Richard Nixon. Humphrey died January 13, 1978. He was 66. The Telegraph Herald wrote about local reaction Humphrey's passing in its January 15, 1978 edition. H.H.H., quote, charmed Dubuque during his two visits. Senator Hubert Humphrey made at least two campaign appearances in Dubuque during his long political career, one in 1959 and the second in 1964. A crowd of nearly 3,500 gathered in Dubuque's municipal airport on October 16, 1964, to hear Humphrey who was then campaigning for vice president, stump for local and state candidates. Humphrey also lashed out against Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater in his one-hour stop. The brief campaign appearance was Humphrey's last visit to Dubuque. The crowd, some of which arrived in dozens of chartered buses from a 200-mile radius around Dubuque, swarmed Humphrey as he made his way back to the plane, forcing Humphrey to hop on a forklift to board the plane. Thomas J. Mulgrew III of Dubuque remembers that 1964 visit. Mulgrew was was Dubuque County Democratic chairman that year and remembers Humphreys as one of the most charming men I ever met in my life. Quote, when I had a conversation with him, he, seeming, he seemed totally interested in me, 
end quote, Mulgrew said. Another Dubuque resident recalled his friendship with Humphrey over the years. Charles Murphy was the master of ceremonies at Humphrey's 1959 visit to Dubuque. Murphy said that in 1959, event was held at the American Legion Hall, which is now destroyed. Quote, Hubert would always come down and help raise money, end quote, Murphy said. He was that kind of man. Murphy recalled that at the 1959 event, he spotted two grand old Irish ladies from the south end of town who had done a lot for the Democratic Party. Murphy suggested to Humphrey that he go over and talk with them. Quote, and he did, end quote, Murphy said. Quote, he warmed the cockles of their hearts. He was very kind. The 1959 event started a lasting friendship between Murphy and Humphrey. Murphy said that he saw Humphrey from time to time and the two exchanged postcards over the years. Hubert Humphrey was one of the most charming guys I ever met, Murphy said. He had warmth, dedication, and loyalty. He knew what, he, what hard work was. He was really at home with the princess and the paupers. Murphy recalls the time that he and other Dubuque traveled to Washington and had their picture taken with Humphrey in his office. Quote, I have it right here in my wallet, Murphy said. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. This is the mid-break. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Ann Koch-Gare. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Tammy Brandenburg. Tammy Brandenburg, 52, of Dubuque, died Wednesday, January 25, 2023, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Visitation will be from 3 o'clock p.m. until Friday, un- until 5.45 p.m. Friday, January 27th. 2023 at Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory. The funeral service for Tammy will be 6 p.m. Friday, January 27th, 2023 at Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory with Deacon Dave Roth officiating. Burial will be in Fairview Cemetery in Farley at a later date. Tammy was born June 22, 1970, in Iowa City, Iowa, the daughter of Patricia Wipert. She, gra- she graduated from the Central High School in 1990. Tammy met the love of her life, Jeff Ned Fox, in 1997. She worked for Anderson Windows and Doors. Tammy loved the time spent with Jeff and her faithful companion, Gunner. She also enjoyed tending to her flower garden and time spent at the Dubuque Boat Club. Survivors include her mother, Patricia, 
in parentheses, Lenny Wipert of Dubuque, the love of her life, Jeff Ned Fox of Dubuque, and his daughter, Jenny Fox, and her daughter, Jordan of Aurora, Illinois, her brother, Corey Vicky Brandenburg of West Branch, Iowa, nephews and niece, Michael, Emily Brandenburg, Michaela Brandenburg, and Quentin Kelly. The family would like to express a, a special thank you to Dr. Whalen and her care team at the University of Iowa Hospital. A photo tribute can be viewed and condolences sent to the family by visiting Tammy's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. <laughs> 